Coming up on Tech News Weekly, it's me, Jason Howell, back in the saddle again, along with Micah Sargent. And uh, we've got a couple of awesome interviews for you, starting with Michelle Rahman, who joins to talk about some changes coming to Android, specifically in India, but with the potential of hitting other places because, you know, the antitrust uh, <laughs> kind of regulatory focus is really on Google right now. So we could see that at some point. Amanda Silberling from TechCrunch talks a little bit about the ongoing saga of Taylor Swifties, <laughs> see, I just combined them together, versus Ticketmaster and Live Nation. I talk about some AI-generated David Cronenberg art that has me really excited about the potential of the future of cinema. I really hope this turns into something at some point. And Micah checks in on the changes happening with the Do Not Pay Port Robot. You don't want to miss it. Tech News Weekly is next. Once again, time for the Twit Audience Survey. The annual survey helps us understand you so we can make your listening experience even better. It only takes a couple of minutes, but it sure helps us out a lot. Completely optional, but if you could, please go to twit.tv slash survey 23. That's twit.tv slash survey 23. You have till the end of the month, but if you would do me a favor and do it today, I can stop mentioning it. Twit.tv slash survey 23. And thanks in advance. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 270, recorded Thursday, January 26th, 2023. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by PlexTrack, the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform. Save time and increase productivity with the platform designed by security professionals to address pain points in reporting and workflow management. Support your team through the complete security lifecycle from assessment through remediation. Visit PlexTrack.com slash twit to claim your free month. And by ExpressVPN. Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash TNW for three extra months free with a one-year package. And by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter makes it easy to hire for even the most specific role, like a mascot in Missouri. In fact, four out of five employers find a quality candidate within the first day. Try it free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. And I'm the other one. I'm back. I'm Jason Howell. I'm over in my corner. Happy to be back with you, Micah. Thanks for uh, covering for me while I was on the slopes last week. No worries. Yes, no one puts baby in the corner, but Jason puts himself in the corner. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you. Good to be back. Uh, good to have some excellent interviews lined up. So why don't we just dive right in? Google continues to feel the heat of uh, unwanted attention around potentially anti-competitive practices, you know, around the globe. So, you know, there's a lot of attention here happening. Just yesterday, Google made some changes that many thought we might never see from the company. They impact India specifically right now, but could signal changes coming to other countries as well. And joining us to talk about the potential impact of these changes is Michelle Rahman, uh, independent writer for Esper and other publications, but of course, also occasional co-host of All About Android. Welcome. Michelle, it's good to see you. It's 
great to be on, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always enjoy having you on. Thank you for hopping on for a few minutes this morning. So let's talk Google. Let's talk Android. Let's talk India. Although my guess, my assumption is that some of this stuff signals what you know, potentially comes down the line as we get further and further down the road with what's happening with Google here in the U.S. and, you know, the the antitrust investigations that are happening left, right and center. But let's focus on India because that's what the news is really about. First, let's talk about the impetus for the changes that Google has detailed here, because, you know, there there has been. Uh, a lot of attention in many different places, India included. Last October, Google was penalized with a fine. There was a series of directives in the country. So I don't know. Give some context or some background as far as like why we're here right now. What did what was India saying back then? So um, for the past several years, India's Competition Commission or the Competition Commission of India, CCI, which is their antitrust regulatory body, they were investigating Google after um, a couple of uh, junior associates and like a law school student, you know, filed a suit. They were, you know, concerned that Google was abusing a uh, monopoly. They had a monopoly in the country. And, you know, they they raised some of the same arguments that we saw in Europe and other countries around the world that, you know, Google's... Um, practices when it comes to licensing Android and bundling its Google apps with its Android device um, compatibility requirements, that uh, those were stifling competition within the country. And so, um, as you mentioned, in October, India's competition authority, they agreed and they slapped Google with a $162 million fine, which is honestly probably nothing for Google. But more importantly are the provisions they uh, you know imposed on Google that as we are now t- going to be talking about soon, they have finally responded and said they'll be making some changes to the way they do their business in India. All right. So now's the time where we dive into some of the details there. Um, yesterday, uh, Google made a post, kind of announced some of those changes. Some of it sounded a little familiar with what we're seeing with uh, you know other companies, namely like Apple is kind of you know also kind of caught in the crossfire here of making changes on the platform that you know, in some ways, we just never expected we'd ever see. But, you know, that's that's what happens when suddenly these governments entities are are looking at you and, and threatening to change your business from the outside looking in. So what is Google changing with its Android business as relates to India right now as a result of this? So the first key point is that, as you can see in the bullet point that we're scrolling through right now, OEMs will be able to license individual Google apps for pre-installation on their devices. So currently the way it works right now is that once OEMs sign what's called a mobile application distribution agreement, they agree to distribute a certain bundle of packages within a uh, package called Google Mobile Services. And that usually includes Google Play Services, the Google Play Store, Chrome, the Google app, Maps, Gmail, you know, a, a bundle of applications that are core to, you know, Google's Android business. But now this directive is forcing Google essentially to say, okay, OEMs, you can pick and choose which Google apps you want to, you know, bundle with your devices instead of saying you have to take our bundle, take it or leave it. So that's one rather significant change. Um, I don't know if how broadly it'll actually impact what kinds of pre-installed applications you'll see on Android devices in India because, you know, for certain I don't expect OEMs to say, I'm going to not take the Google Play Store and just take um, Gmail. You know, it's probably going right. to be 
Google Play Store plus Google Play Services, and then maybe they might instead of Chrome they might have an agreement with Firefox. But I I don't see um, that being a significant threat to Google right now. Um, but the some of the other changes they're making, one of the other biggest changes is that they're updating the Android compatibility requirements so that partners will be able to build non-compatible or forked variants. So right now, um, if you are an OEM and you have a mobile application distribution agreement with Google, you agree that you will only build and distribute compatible versions of Android on your devices in the same market. So if you're building an Android smartphone and you're selling it in India, it will have Google's version of Android, which is compatible. It goes through all their testing, their certification process and everything. And you agree that you won't also ship a different version of Android without Google services that's slightly modified and you can't modify it any other way. Basically saying you have to have, if you take our stuff, you can only use our stuff. You can't slightly modify it and sell it, you know, to another segment of the market. And, and, uh, that's, this, and that 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 is so definitely something that, as those words kind of exit your mouth, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I can understand why why governments might, you know, in the guise of anti-competitive behavior, look at that specific requirement and say, hey, wait a minute, you're kind of mucking with the rest of their business potentially by by setting those limits in place. Yeah, you want to use our stuff, great. You can't do anything else outside of our stuff. It's a little bit more less restrictive than that because you know it's not saying that you can ship only android devices with gms and you can't use another operating system entirely they're just saying you can't use aosp which is the open source version of android alongside the android the google compatible ah, version of android so if, if you wanted android, to build a completely linux way. phone yeah basically right. if right. you want our if you want google's apps on android you got to do it our way that's yeah. been the, the policy for the longest time. What about inner inner app, inter Google app compatibility in the sense that, you know, we're I don't, more and more it seems like um, on Android and probably probably iOS as well. But um, but I'm not as schooled in the in the realm of, of iOS, so I can't make that complete comparison. But at least in the world of Google, it seems like Google's apps often have these like interconnected capabilities is that any part of the reason why google wants the the all or nothing approach as far as its suite is concerned or maybe they've built it that way to ensure that that has legs but um when we're splitting these pieces apart and saying okay yeah sure take what you want leave what you don't does that potentially create problems for how these phones operate and i imagine if it does google's probably working on that but what's your take on that yeah, absolutely. There's there's definitely layers to this, um, you know, this puzzle. So uh, certain applications, like I'll take Gmail as an example, they're not crucial to the functionality of an Android phone. You could right. take Gmail out of GMS and replace it with, you know, Outlook, and everything else would still function the same. Gmail, Gmail is not absolutely crucial. But something like Google Play Services, for example, that powers so many APIs that are used by millions of apps on Android. So like push notifications, um, you know, things like that. Like if you were to take out Google Play services, all of a sudden, a lot of your apps just wouldn't be able to send you push notifications anymore. So these compatibility requirements, you know, actually ensure that across the devices that are considered Google compatible, you have a set of standard APIs that are available to any apps that want to use them. So if you were to look at an example of um, an Android device that is not considered Google compatible, um, all, such as all the devices that are sold by Huawei, they don't have Google Play services. 
So what you'll quickly mm-hmm. discover is that a lot of the applications just won't be able to send you push notifications or use a lot of, a lot of services that they depend on. So this would kind of break compatibility and, you know, result in fragmentation, which is why Google, they called these agreements that binded OEMs, they called them the anti-fragmentation agreement or the Android compatibility commitment. Like there were valid reasons for them to do this. And of course, there's mm-hmm. a double-edged sword and it locks people into the Google ecosystem. So there is a cynical way to look at it. And there's also, you know, the, the Google way to look at it, which is they're both equally valid in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. Now, um, now, as I mentioned earlier, you know, India is not the only place that Google is feeling the heat as far as this is concerned. Um, there's news this week, you know, that that involves uh, uh, Google being sued by the Department of Justice around anti-competitive behavior and its ad business. And, you know, this all extends, you know, Android is very integrated in that as well. Android as a platform was seen, you know, and still continues to be seen as a vector for exposure to ads and that valuable data and it's all intertwined. So the things that are happening in India right now and in other places, the EU is also, you know, kind of impacting change on Google's business. Like, what's your take as far as like what we're seeing here in the US and and like almost like a carbon copy potential of, you know what, this is just the solution that works elsewhere in the world. We're going to implement that here in the U.S. as well. Do you see that as a potential? Do you see that as a possible um, something that we might look forward to in the coming years? Certainly. We're already seeing a lot of this happening, actually. So, for example, the user choice billing, which is also mentioned as being rolled out in India soon. Um, So that is actually also in pilot testing in the U.S., and if you'll know, like the U.S. hasn't imposed any kind of restriction on Google's businesses yet. You know, there are threats. There are continued threats from various state, um, you know, AGs and like various, you know, regulatory bodies. But nothing so far has happened in the U.S. right now. But we're still seeing Google kind of proactively do damage control, saying, you know, we're, we'll offer these concessions so that, you know, we won't have any worse restrictions down the line. You know, we'll give you some of this right now. And you know, some of the terms may not be as favorable as what some of the developers who are suing Google may be looking for, but they're, you know, good enough to say, you know, we've, we've done this. So, and so like the user choice billing, for example, it gives you the choice to pay between Google's billing services and another platform, but uh, Google still takes a cut of the revenue either way, you know, so it's still, it's a still, it's a win for Google, but it's also a win for developers. And, We'll continue to see these kinds of uh, provisions roll out, you know, around the world because I don't see these kind like Google facing any less scrutiny over, you know, these practices anywhere anytime soon. No, no, I don't. It, it feels more and more intensified with each uh, with each year. The last couple of years, things have uh, really heated up. So I don't expect that to go away anytime soon. Uh, Michelle Ramon, always a pleasure getting you on the shows. And of course, love having you on All About Android. Um, if people want to follow your work online, because you do some amazing work, where would you suggest that they go to do that? So the best place would be on Twitter, at Michelle Ramon. Or which is my username handle on pretty much every social media platform. That's where I post about, you know, everything new that I discover in Android on the Android platform. Um, you know, I'm currently looking for more work since I was uh, part of a layoff at my previous employer, Esper. So if you are looking for someone who knows a lot about Android, come check me out at Michelle Ramon on Twitter and other social media platforms. Excellent. Thank you, Michelle. Take care of yourself and we'll see you very soon. <laughs> 
<laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jason. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Coming up next, uh, the Taylor Swift saga continues. Live Nation, Ticketmaster, and a whole lot of angry Swifties uh, <laughs> might actually be directing things into, I don't know, potential change as far as how live concert uh, promotion and ticket sales and everything uh, happens. That's going to be coming up here after this break. But first, let's take a break to thank the sponsor of this episode of Tech News Weekly, and that is PlexTrack, the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform. Uh, PlexTrack empowers teams to win the right security battles. Sure, you, you know, <laughs> you, you realize security is a constant battle, right? Well, you want a team like PlexTrack behind you on that. Uh, what if you could streamline the communication across the entire security department so that every team member could actually do their job more efficiently? Simplified data aggregation and reporting, to integrated ticketing for things like remediation, uh, to analytics and visualizations for board reporting. PlexTrack actually touches every aspect of the security management workflow. That's what makes it so powerful. Gain a real-time view of your security posture by bringing all your data sources together into one powerful platform where you can triage scanner results, you can generate powerful analytics and visualizations, you can assign those remediation tasks that things get done, you can attest to your posture and track that progress over time. It's got everything. As a satisfied PlexTrack client put it, we see PlexTrack as a part of our strategy to move quicker and be proactive. Now we have a real-time view of what we need to focus on, and I have an easy way of showing senior leadership. PlexTrack serves every aspect of the Enterprise Security Team program with features designed to improve your workflow, collaboration, and communication for each role. That includes red team data aggregation, so you can import data from all your automated vulnerability scanners and tools. You can triage uh, and report those results in half the time. So you're cutting down on the time to do all that. Blue team remediation. So that's assigning remediation tasks, uh, like I said, right on the platform or through robust integrations with the ticketing tools that your team is likely already using, things like Jira and ServiceNow. And then, of course, tracking that progress over time so you know how it's doing. Stakeholder communication. So you can use powerful yet simple analytics to attest to security posture. You can prioritize those issues, tailor attestation and communication to the needs of both team members and the C-suite. And then continuous purple teaming assessment. Uh, you can begin purple teaming or power up your current strategies with runbooks, the best in industry tool for test plan execution. Now, security teams of all sizes and maturities can maximize the efficiency and effectiveness of their workflows with PlexTrack. Uh, customers report that PlexTrack enables the team to produce higher quality findings to our stakeholders faster. Uh, that's what they say, that the platform has a five times ROI in year one and that it gives their cybersecurity operations a 30% increase in efficiency. PlexTrack improves the entire security engagement lifecycle, makes it easy to generate security reports, deliver them securely, and track the issues to completion straight from the platform. And you can book a demo today. Try PlexTrack free for one month and see how it can change your life as a security professional. All you got to do is go to PlexTrack.com slash twit. You can claim your free month there. That's P-L-E-X-T-R-A-C, PlexTrack.com slash T-W-I-T. And we thank PlexTrack for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right, Micah, over to you. 
Yes. Uh, so we had talked before on the show um, about the Taylor Swift ticket uh, master nonsense and kind of mm. wondering where that was going to end up going. Um, and also talked about how the Senate sort of put their attention on the fact that it was uh, hard to get tickets and that some people who should have gotten access to tickets. I mean, it was it was a mess. And of course, uh, ticket Ticketmaster, uh, as a huge ticket sales platform, was at the center of this. Joining us today to talk about the uh, Senate hearing and what's going on with Live Nation and Ticketmaster is TechCrunch's own Amanda Silberling. Welcome back to the show, Amanda. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, always a pleasure to get you on. So uh, before we dig into this most recent Senate hearing, I think it'd be a good idea to kind of rewind and talk about what uh, happened that led up to this and talk about why the Senate is talking to the CFO and president of Live Nation, if you could do that for us. Yeah, so I think to zoom out, it's sort of the same issue of if you're a music fan or a sports fan, We've all had this happen to us where you want to buy tickets for something and you're like there the moment they go on sale, they're $50 tickets, suddenly they're all sold out and then a minute later they're reselling for like $200. So then as the consumer, you're like, well, do I pay four times the price or do I just not go to this thing I want to go to? And so this is an existing problem and then it sort of came to a crescendo in November when the Taylor Swift Eras tour went on pre-sale and it was just such a disaster. <laughs> and people that had like verified fan, which is like a Ticketmaster program, like they had verified fan pre-access and weren't able to get in. There was an unprecedented amount of uh, activity on the website and Ticketmaster just wasn't prepared to handle it. And they ended up canceling ticket sales. Some fans were in virtual queues for hours at a time. And it was just a huge mess. And I think in part because of the popularity of Taylor Swift and the popularity of this tour, it really brought into the forefront the issues of like, we all have so many problems on Ticketmaster. And mm -hmm. that's just kind of our only option in ecosystem it can feel like absolutely and one of the things that stuck out stuck out to me was uh, i knew about the Ticketmaster thing but you also talked about an issue that different folks had with the bad bunny concert so even after the taylor swift debacle there was more uh, that happened and i'm curious was it a situation where it's the straw that broke the camel's back or was it a situation that because of Taylor Swift's popularity, uh, is that why you think this got as much attention as it did? Did it just take an artist this big to do so? Or was it kind of like, look, this is the final straw. We continue to see this. And whether you're a small artist or a large artist, uh, this is an issue. Yeah, well, I really love this quote from Lena Khan, who's the current FTC chair, where she said that the Taylor Swift pre-sale ticketing debacle turned more people into anti-monopolists than anything <laughs> she could have ever done, which I just <laughs> love it. But um, but yeah, I mean, the Bad Bunny concert is just another example of how when companies like Ticketmaster fail, it 
affects people. Like what happened in that situation was Bad Bunny was playing to sold out arena shows in Mexico City. And there were thousands of people who they bought tickets on Ticketmaster. Like this wasn't like a resale thing. Like these were Ticketmaster sold tickets and then they couldn't get in because Ticketmaster sold more than the capacity of the venue. Mm -hmm. And it's just things like that where like it's frustrating for consumers because they spent so much money on these tickets that they got on Ticketmaster and they still can't get into the show because of problems with the company. Yikes. Now, moving on to the the hearing that took place to kind of investigate what was going on, you know, talking to the CFO uh, and president of Live Nation, um, I noticed not only in your piece, but all over social media, <laughs> there were Taylor Swift references aplenty. Um, and it was interesting seeing the initial reaction to those uh, references where people seemed to be kind of annoyed by it, seemed to be bothered that uh, maybe the senators or, uh, you know, the folks talking to uh, CFO were not taking it seriously. But I am curious, you know, from, from your own perspective and looking at this and looking at the reaction and kind of trying to piece through things, you think there's a strategy at work here? Is this, you know, memeable behavior for the sake of getting it in, in front of more people's eyes? It's kind of going back to what, you know, Lena Khan said, where this situation here uh, resulted in generations that may not pay attention to this suddenly paying attention to it. Or was it just the fact that, um, Senators are trying to be, you know, stars in their own right and make jokes uh, for the sake of making jokes. I feel like they're probably just trying to have fun, but there could be (laughs) an agenda behind it of like when Senator Blumenthal says that Ticketmaster needs to look in the mirror and says, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. Like, I laughed. Like, it's just kind of you don't expect those kinds of jokes to happen at a Senate hearing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, this has really become a mainstream issue. Like there are diehard Swifties that are watching this hearing. And these aren't people that are typically like, yeah, let me tune in to (laughs) Senate.gov slash whatever. Um, Yeah. I mean, it does probably draw more attention to the issue, but I also think this is already like a bit more of a popular, um, potential monopoly case than like meta buying another VR company. Like it's Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah. Now I uh, was kind of taken aback. There was a shocking number in your article, Uh, 80%. uh, That number, according to the department of justice uh, relates to Ticketmaster and live nation merging in which they control that, that new company, Uh, the department of justice justice said, Hey, this will mean that Ticketmaster and Live Nation will control 80% of the market. And so it made me kind of wonder um, about that initial merger. Was there concern about the fact that the company would own 80% of the market by their estimation and anything you know put in place to uh, sort of quell that concern uh, since obviously the merger did go through? Yeah, well, the reason why the merger went through was because they enforced a consent decree, which basically is a ruling that it would be um, a violation for Live Nation to, like, go to a venue or an artist or, like, 
whoever is involved in a situation and be like, hey, like if you don't use Ticketmaster for your sales, then we're not going to let you use our promoters or our venue, which like it is really complicated because in these situations like Ticketmaster might be selling the tickets, but Live Nation operates venues. They like exist in basically every aspect of promoting a show. So Mm. the DOJ basically wanted to make sure that Ticketmaster and Live Nation couldn't pressure other entities and uh, to make sure that they're using the services that they want them to use. And um, that 80% number was from when the DOJ was like looking into this, like, is this a monopoly? Should we block this merger back in like 2010? Mm -hmm. And at the hearing this week, the CFO of Ticketmaster was like, well, actually, or of Live Nation. Um, but he was like, well, actually, it's more like 50 or 60% of the market share now because there's all these resale uh, outlets like Vivid Seats, SeatGeek, et cetera. But that's still a big amount. I think there's like specific thresholds for what is a monopoly, but that's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that 80% uh, really does stick out. Now, yes, this consent decree um, was the the thing that was put in place, and it was um, modified in 2019, according to your piece, uh, because there was sort of, I, I guess we'll call it concern. It was technically more than just concern, um, but not a whole lot of things would come with it. So a concern that Ticketmaster slash Live Nation had violated the consent decree. So they went ahead and modified it in 2019. What changes were were put in place to try and make a difference in how Ticketmaster, Live Nation were handling things? The Justice Department modified the decree because it found that Live Nation had violated it and was using like Ticketmaster and vice versa as leverage to try to get other promoters to do more favorable deals with them. And Live Nation denied this, but who knows? As a result, (laughs) it made uh, the decree extend another five years and they revised it just to be more clear about what Live Nation can and can't do. So they're still under that decree for a few more years at this point. Interesting. Yeah. So quite literally, the thing that the decree was meant to prevent was uh, what Live Nation was then accused of doing. And so uh, the Department of Justice said, well, we're going to make it so that it's a little bit more clear so you don't have these gray areas. And also we're going to make you hold to it longer, um, which is, is fascinating. Now, All of this, of course, is about investigating what happened and, in theory, making changes that would have an impact on the way that this is all working, or I should say not working. Um, Has anyone come up with any ideas to actually solve the problem? And if so, what are uh, the the proposed solutions to this issue? Uh, Or is this more about not about uh, punishing the company and then letting the company figure out how they're going to solve it. I think it's still up in the air at this point at the hearing, there were some uh, potential solutions thrown out. One of them is waiting and see what comes of the ongoing department of justice investigation into live nation. And if that investigation finds that live nation is acting as a monopoly, then the senators on the panel said that 
um, breaking up Live Nation could be on the table. Um, some other proposals were uh, they talked about the Bots Act, which was passed in 2016 and basically gives the FTC license to crack down on ticket resale firms that use bots, buy all the Taylor Swift tickets, then mark them up for like four times the price. And that act has only been enforced one time in 2021 when there were three firms that were fined a total of $31 million, I believe. And so some of the senators were saying like, well, the FTC needs to enforce that more. And then another proposal was what if uh, reselling tickets just isn't legal? And what if like you can't transfer a ticket? But I don't really think people were enthusiastic about that because then like (laughs) what happens if, I buy a ticket for me and my friend for a concert and my friend get, like can't go anymore. Like, right it, it, there. And, it's just like not really a solution. And it also opens up uh live nation slash Ticketmaster to make a bunch of money on uh ticket insurance. You know what I mean? And then you pay that $15 so you can get your money back because you get sick and can't go instead of being able to sell it to your friend. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, in this one very specific way, I do have some, you know, feels, uh, and understanding for the, this company, because this is a hard problem to solve. And I think that that's why it has taken, uh, well, in part taken such a long time to do it. I think that it is, uh, perhaps a good idea for there to be some pushback so that the company sort of prioritizes prioritizes this, but I think it'll be fascinating to continue to see um, and continue to watch to see how uh, these companies are going to try to fix the problem. But in the meantime, I'm curious, Amanda, um, do you foresee, if you can look in your crystal ball, uh, artists sort of making their own version of Ticketmaster? Because I know there were early calls for that and folks saying, hey, if anyone can do it, it's Taylor Swift. I don't know if Taylor Swift necessarily wants to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I could call her up right now. No, I can't, but (laughs) I don't know. I think that it's hard to start a company. Even if you're a celebrity, there's Mm -hmm. just a lot that goes into making a platform that has these kinds of like tech innovation that can stop the bots, which it's like if Ticketmaster can't adequately stop bots and they've been doing this for how long, then like, if Taylor Swift creates a platform tomorrow, does she have the resources to invest in people to make the kind of technology that Ticketmaster hasn't successfully implemented? Which I don't know. I mean, like, never underestimate Swifties. Like, they can do anything, but <laughs> I'm afraid of them. They're, they are a formidable <laughs> yeah. force on the internet. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Well, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out to talk to us today. Uh, If folks want to follow you online and make sure they're staying up to date with your work, where should they go to do so? I am unfortunately still very on Twitter. I cannot break (laughs) the habit. So my Twitter is at asilbwrites, A-S-I-L-B, writes. And um, you can find my writing on TechCrunch. And I have a podcast, Wow If True, about internet culture. And it is, I think it's good. So you should listen to it. Absolutely. I didn't realize that you did. And I will be downloading (laughs) or subscribing to that right after the show. So that's exciting. Thank you so much for your time. 
<laughs> Thank you. All right. Up next, people are salty about an AI fakeout. We'll discuss those details momentarily. But first, I want to tell you about ExpressVPN because they're bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. So I have a question for you. Have you ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode, private mode, privacy mode, uh, not being tracked mode. It says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school, your internet service provider. And so it makes you go, well, then how can they even call it incognito? Because you aren't actually incognito. To really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, what you need to do is what I do, which is use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi uh, at a coffee shop, maybe, or a hotel, or your parents' home. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the administrator of that network. And that's still true even when you're using incognito mode in your browser. You really want your parents to see what you've been looking at? I don't think you do. What's more, your home internet provider can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. Truly, it's kind of amazing the list of devices it supports and the wonderful support it has to let you know how to set it up. And it's super easy to use. In fact, on you know iPhone, on iPad, uh, on the Mac when I'm using it, it's one button. You just press the button to connect and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. I have ExpressVPN on everything because... Why not? I mean, it is kind of magnificent how I will often forget that it's on and it's fine that it's on. I might as well use it because I've got it uh, because the speeds are so great. And on the occasion when I need to do a little bit of um, location hopping for content that might be locked, it's very handy. And even in some places where I expected things to go so much slower, Australia is a great example of this. They are notorious for having not a super fast internet connection as a country. Um, I've been impressed with the speeds that ExpressVPN provides in those countries for a little bit of um, Australian survivor watching. It's a great show. Uh, so stop letting strangers invade your online privacy, or in the case of your parents, not strangers, but folks who you might not want seeing what you're browsing. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash TNW. I'm telling you, if you're looking for a VPN, ExpressVPN is your answer. It's the answer that I'll give you. It's the answer I give to anyone who asks because I trust ExpressVPN and I know the technology that's involved and it, it's magnificent. So use our link at expressvpn.com slash TNW because going there lets them know that you heard about it here on the show, but it also means that you will get three extra months free with a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash TNW to learn more. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly and for always making sure I can browse privately online. I appreciate you. All right, back from the break, and it's time for Jason Howell's Story of the Week. 
Yeah. And my story of the week this week is like a combination of my current fascination with artificial intelligence, big surprise, <laughs> and my lifelong fascination with horror films. Uh, are you a horror film fan? Micah? I have become more of a horror film fan, um, quite actually quite a lot, certainly growing up. No, 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 no. But uh, right, these right. days, yeah, I do. I do like horror. <laughs> so I've, I've loved them. I mean, since I was actually probably too young to watch horror films, my parents <laughs> were not very good at keeping me away from them. So, you know, got in early and I've just loved them my entire life. I'm always fascinated by them. Well, this story kind of combines both things and which is why it caught my attention. So David Cronenberg if you haven't seen his films, you got to see some of his films. He's the famous uh, body. It's called the, the genre, the subgenre of horror is called body horror. It's like horror that has to do with the body. I mean, that's is, is really, uh, you know, very straightforward. Things like The Fly, Naked Lunch, Dead Ringers, just to name a few. Very, um, very well-known horror movie uh, director is at the center of a let's say a minor Internet squibble <laughs> involving <laughs> AI art and um I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting to see the reaction to this. So Keith Schofield or Schofield is an Emmy nominated LA based director of uh, music videos and commercials. Got to messing around with mid journey. He realized that the latest version that I guess was released late last year, I think in November, um, supports a three to two aspect ratio. So he started playing around with prompts because he recognized like three to two aspect ratio. Now we're getting into an aspect ratio that's very similar to film. And I will just kind of give a, a little bit of a warning for video listeners because some of the, the results are a little uh, eerie, unsettling. Nothing's like R rated explicitly, but if, you know, weird kind of like body imagery kind of throws you off, like you might not want to look at it, but I find it fascinating. He started playing around with the prompts that had to do with film and motion pictures. His prompts, you know, one of them that he mentioned anyways that I could find DVD screen grab was in there. Everything made of skin and joints, tendons, nerves, umbilical cords, stomachs, arteries. You know, these were parts of his prompts and he wasn't sure what he was going to come up with. On January 10th, he posted a thread to Twitter and the thread was called David Cronenberg's Galaxy of Flesh 1985. That's it. That's all he put out. No context around it. That plus a bunch of screenshots, and I'll put those in air quotes, of this fictional movie. And, I mean, I'm looking through these screenshots. I'm like, holy cow, I want to see this movie that doesn't exist. Like, this looks like an amazing movie from the 80s, right? Um, a few other posts of the shots followed. Eventually, he linked to an imager album with around 280 photos that he was able to pull uh, from those experiments. But just to describe what you see if you look at these things, if you're, if you're listening to this show, the images are photorealistic. They really look like shots from the 80s, like an 80s film, like a really gritty 80s B, you know, B movie They're in the, in the really horror impressive. genre. Super impressive. Lots of exposed rib cages, fleshy wiring. It's really like the, the concept seems to be like robots that are powered by like human organs. I don't, I don't know how to put it other than that, but it's really captivating to my imagination. If you were to take Dune or Star Wars and then mix that with AR, uh, HR Geiger's artwork, uh, mm -hmm. things like Alien, you know, the artwork, his artwork can be seen there. Then you kind of have a sense of what you get out of some of these screenshots. Um, but it doesn't exist, right? Like, this isn't a film that exists. Well, Keith was met with a barrage of very, very angry people on Twitter. 
uh, in response to his experiment. One person said, congrats on stealing art to make a fake movie that looks nothing like the work of the man you're presenting it as. Uh, another said, I get no juice or excitement out of this stuff, man. It's mostly just super depressing. AI is a tool. Yeah, dude, so is a hydrogen bomb. So very visceral response. Uh, he's received death threats apparently as well. Um, and I, I don't know if part of this has to do with the fact that, you know, when he put it out, he didn't necessarily say like this, you know, this film doesn't exist. He put it out like it's very convincing when you see the the tweet and you see the example you're like, whoa, I've never heard of this David Cronenberg film. And then you look into it and you realize like it's not actually a film. But that that's kind of like was his thought behind it is let's imagine in the, in a world where David Cronenberg <laughs> made this film. Uh, and it's super believable, right? So I think some people have that like hoodwinked feeling, feel like they were kind of taken for a ride. I think some of the response most most certainly has to do with people's mixed emotions and feelings about artificial intelligence replacing the art of humans and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm just like I was fascinated looking through these things. And it turns out like this this isn't the only thing that exists out there. Creator Johnny Darrell posted in December screenshots of a version of Tron from the 70s. So that was kind of part of his prompt done in the style of Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky, who's a surrealist cult director from Chile. Um, and I mean, the results are just like, again, you know, things look very convincing. 70s film kind of grittiness, aesthetic, the the Tron kind of neon, um, neon approach, but done, I don't know, taking it to this extra level that is just mm -hmm. really fascinating and pleasing to my eyes. Rob Sheridan is an art director for Nine Inch Nails. He used Midjourney to imagine the sitcom Frasier in the style of Jodorowsky, too. And again, like, this is just wow. so weird and bizarre when you think of these images that you see through that lens. And I think what really fascinates me about this is that these are movies that don't exist, but they totally could. And I don't know if this imagery or this combination, like I'm sure at some point a human could come up with it, but the fact that an AI has helped create this vision, like so many people, you know, once again, I'm, I'm probably going to be a, a broken record. People automatically see this and say, it's the end of art. Like I'm an artist and this is going to put me out of business, blah, blah, blah. But this seems like a prime example of using these tools to create an idea around something that could then become something. If, if like my, my imagination is if you were to take these Cronenberg shots and fashion a movie around that imagery, like it's the, like, I think you'd have a really fantastic, uh, exp you know, experiment, uh, mm -hmm. in cinema. And that's what I hope that these things kind of lead to. Like it, it gets me excited for what's to come. Cause I guarantee you at some point in the future, we're going to see some big budget Hollywood, um, team get behind like what if we take this amazing imagery that is that you know that we didn't conceive of that a that an AI did and created something incredibly unique even though many people will say it's not totally unique it's derived from other artwork and everything but I mean when you look at these images like I don't know there's something really unique and special about it that I would love to see a, a big time director or just someone with a, you know, a lot of creative vision take those and say, okay, what happens if we turn this into a film and we actually do this the way it needs to be? This is always such a tough thing because the, the biggest problem I have with it at, at its, the biggest problem I have with the arguments against are at their root 
so um, what's the so I, I, I wish I knew how to make the word Luddite an adjective because it's like Lud. Ladicious, yeah, ladate, yeah. I don't know. In the sense that, because this, uh, like, the technology has been in development, it is now here, and people are continuing to work on it. And so you have an option of either, I don't know, going and destroying the servers, and uh, I guess like making the people who made it move to Mars and never talk to us again. Right. Or you can figure out. Yeah. Or you can figure out how to exist in this timeline that does have that technology now. And I think that, you know, bringing up the concerns is worthwhile and, we should always discuss um, the potential downfalls, pitfalls, et cetera. But we know that once the technology is there, um, we just have to figure out what comes next and how it comes next rather than saying like, that's just never an avenue to go down. That's, that's where it gets really, yeah, Yeah. it's so it's, it, it makes no, that that part of it makes no sense to me. Um, and so instead, yeah, it is about, I think, looking at how it can be used as a means to be a uh, creativity starter um, or help uh, look at look at the technology and then say, because the argument, of course, is that there is something different about a human being creating the thing. So, you know, a human being creates a portal to another world uh, with uh, tiny little uh, gumdrop flowers shaped like uh, coffee cups versus me telling an AI to do that. If the argument is that those two are different, then let's see you, you know, do that thing and show how a human being uh, provides an extra uh, a bit of value to it. Because if it's just like, no, 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 don't even look at the AI thing because what I'm doing is so much more magical and real and this and that and the other, is it, you know, and can you, can you show that? Can you show that value? Can you show that, um, if, if that's the argument you're going to make, then I guess, you know, I'm from the show me state originally. Missouri is the show me state. You got to show me. Um, <laughs> show me. Show me. So, that, yeah, that's that's where I am on that. And I I say this with the utmost understanding and respect for the fact that uh, there is panic, there is concern and reasonable panic and concern. I'm not saying that there's that, you know, there shouldn't be worry there, right. but right. to just outright say just by default, all of this is bad and no one should, you know, do, that's just not realistic. That's not realistic at all. Unless you get, again, a group of people together who build, uh, I guess a rocket made out of, uh, uh, Copic markers and pencils and, and, uh, sketch pads, and then put everybody who makes, uh, these AI systems on it and send them again to Mars. That's the only way that that's going to change. So instead we got to flip the script and we got to figure out how to, either use this technology or make the decision not to use this technology and make that the value that you have. This has yeah. no AI involved in it at all. And the fact is most modern art that's done on a computer is also going to involve AI because 
all of us have these machines that have little these chips on them tools. that are specifically AI chips that are, you know, doing things at the computational level to create the art that we're trying to create. So there's it, it's all assisted. long since past yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Like when I think of Photoshop, right? Like it's it's easy, to, you know, and, and we have over, you know, I think early on there was the same fear about Photoshop is like, oh, well, we're not going to be able to trust any of the images that we see. Now we live in an environment where Photoshop is just the standard. It's a tool to be used by people who know how to use that tool. When you think of like the lasso tool in Photoshop or the magic yes. lasso tool that automatically looks at an image and, and tell, gives you a rough estimate of the edges of the thing that you're trying to like crop out or whatever, like that's that's an assisted tool. That's a robot making a determination that this is what you're looking for, right? And you as the artist have the ability to peel it back and say, oh, no, actually, I needed this corner up over here or to accept it and say, yeah, that's actually pretty close to what I was looking for. I'm just going to go with that. Um, Joe Esposito in the TNW uh, Discord channel said the theft of art is a real concern, but the generation of ideas shouldn't have specific correct avenues. And I totally so agree well with that. Yeah, so very well put. put. So, anyways, I all of this is to say, I really want a Hollywood or or someone to like be inspired by this idea and do something with it. I would love to see five, you know, four or five years from now, some sort of like movie that really leans into this idea of using AI to create this really out of this world vision of sci-fi or horror or something that's unlike anything we've seen before because some of these images that I'm seeing I'm like oh god I haven't seen that before but I'm really compelled by it you know yeah. to, to watch that so anyways, this is going to be the, the sure next GMO versus non-GMO labeling you'll go to the movie right. theater and it's like over here are the films with the rating AI. system <laughs> yeah which frankly again we go back like the 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 graphic artists or the computer artists who are making uh, Superman fly in a film are also using well, yeah. computer vision and AI in many means already. So That's I, a yeah. really great point, actually, when you think about it, because you know, in the seventies, what kind of digital arts existed to fake to pretend mm -hmm. that what you see is actually real? You know, it was all about practical effects and everything prior to that. But then at some point, the computers got good enough. The, the users of the computers got good enough to create the visual representation of what they, you know, could have maybe figured out in a practical sense. But, you know, and I remember early days in the 80s, you know, digital effects, like even then digital effects were kind of like, okay, this is this is neat, but it's, you know, it still doesn't look real. Like now we're kind of at the point to where all those skills have, you know, and the capabilities, the progress made on, on the, you know, the chips and everything over decades have improved to the point to where now things, it's really hard to tell the difference. But, but we don't, you know, we don't wag our finger at the people in Hollywood doing that necessarily. Right. I guess some people do, but uh, yeah, there are for the most part, like, we're okay with it. We buy into only it. practical yeah. effects, and and yeah, it's always right. funny. I so I have uh, I've got several friends, uh, close friends who work in CGI, who work in um, you know the the digital effects, and. Almost every time there's someone who says, "Oh yes, this was a practical, f uh, practical art film only." Da 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 da. They will then share uh, a reel from the CGI company that the movie hired to do all of the digital effects that were in the film. There's almost yeah. no films this these days that 
only have practical effects because somewhere at some point there's going to be one change that the director wanted to make and so they needed to use cgi to do it so this badge of honor that you know supposedly exists in so many cases is not really a a badge of honor and i mean do open ai and all of these there are human beings who created these tools so yeah it's still humanity All of it's still humanity. We are, yes. AI is made of people. <laughs> oh, my God. It's soil and green. <laughs> there we go. All right. So that's... Oh, sorry uh, for the can, spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Yeah, th- at this point, I think everybody gets it. <laughs> for that one person, sorry. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about robots again, but robots in court and how that might not be a thing yet. It'll probably happen eventually, but maybe not yet. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Are you hiring someone who needs to wear many hats? Maybe you have a hiring need and you need someone who can fill all the you know little, little needs uh, within that role. Or maybe you're hiring for a simple role, but it's taking forever to find someone who's a great fit. I'm sure you've been on both sides of that. Uh, well, whether you're hiring a civil engineer in, in New York, a pediatric nurse in Nebraska, an attorney in Colorado, or there's that one person out there that's looking for a mascot in Missouri. Yes, you too can turn to ZipRecruiter to find qualified candidates fast. From accounting to zoologists and everything in between, ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right experience. And then once they've been located, you can invite your top choices to apply with a single click. And four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So when you're talking about, you know, finding forever to find someone that's the great fit, that's part of the power of ZipRecruiter right there. Why waste all that time? Get right to the, <laughs> the person who's, who's qualified. Try it free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, and you got to check it out for yourself to see why that is the case. And we thank ZipRecruiter for their support of TNW Tech News Weekly. All right, Micah, what you got? Yeah, so back on episode 264 of this very show, um, I spoke to the CEO of Do Not Pay, uh, a website or a service rather uh, that aims itself at trying to save you money um, to help you get refunds, to help you mm. uh get money back in all sorts of way, uh, try to, to cut back on the cost of tickets. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Uh, do not pay is aiming to help you get all of that stuff figured out. But I brought the CEO of do not pay onto the show because at the time uh, they were experimenting with the, um, with, with chat GPT, with open AI uh, to try and use chat GPT in a court case. So the idea was that someone would say have a a ticket and they had a hearing for the ticket. And so they go to the courtroom and they've got some sort of wireless device in their ear and it's able to listen to the court case. And then using all of the, the trained, um, the machine that, 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 uh, do not pay has be able to provide responses, uh, on what you should say to, 
in some way get out of that ticket. Uh, so kind of an interesting and compelling idea. And it's no surprise that uh, Joshua Browder, the CEO of Do Not Pay, was uh, thinking about doing that. However, um, on Wednesday, uh, so yesterday, as we record this show on Thursday, um, Joshua Browder said, look, we were thinking about doing that, but we're going to not worry about doing that for now. And it was interesting, whenever we had uh, Joshua on the show, I remember um, Browder talking about how there were people kind of coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, this isn't a good idea. You shouldn't do this. This is uh, this is going to cause all sorts of complications. And it could, uh, you know, you could find yourself embroiled in all sorts of legal battles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so on Wednesday said, hey, look, we're not going to do this. Um, instead, we are going to focus on kind of our original uh, goal and our original uh, you know, value proposition of helping company or helping individuals save money um, in the, the way that that uh, is a more automated approach. So as an example, you know, there are along with with going to, say, Comcast and uh, getting some money taken off of your bill or uh, having a bank's overdraft removed from your account, that kind of thing, overdraft fee removed from your account. Um, there are lots of different processes that involve just forms. You are pretty much just filling out forms. And what the company realized is we could fill out those forms without an individual who could otherwise not afford a lawyer, for example. Um, we could help you fill out those forms and get you what you need uh, without involving that. And I love this quote uh, from Browder. Uh, it says, there are lots of good lawyers doing great work, such as human rights lawyers and Supreme Court lawyers. But there are others who are on billboards charging hundreds of dollars for copying and pasting documents. And those are the ones that we want to replace. I that made like that made me happy because um, it is one of these systems where it almost reminds me of the U.S. tax code. And how at the end of the year, we have to file our taxes. And uh, there have been a number of independent investigations and uh, reports about how tax preparation software has a bunch of money in lobbying to continue to make it complicated for people to file their taxes so that they can continue to make money off of people at the end of every year or the start of the new year for people needing to file their taxes who would otherwise not you know, know what they were supposed to do. And it's so unfair and frustrating and just upsetting that um, – you know, we're being taken advantage of regularly and enough, not a whole lot of people know uh, enough about it to realize that's going on. And I feel that the same thing applies here. If most of the time it's just filling out a few forms and it's just that there are some people who know how to fill out those forms and some people who don't, heck yeah, let's make that an automated process. Heck yeah, let's make that more accessible uh, so that people aren't going broke trying to prevent themselves from going broke. Uh, so I'm glad in the in that way that you know do not pay is returning focus on 
uh, the stuff that makes sense for now. But they do plan to continue using uh, OpenAI and GPT as part of the, the, the system. So one example that they talked about um, is that there is a, uh, a, a thing called CPT codes. And CPT codes are kind of the price of different procedures and uh, medical uh, line items. Basically, if you go to the doctor and you have these services done, here's what it would cost. And there was a law put in place that said, hey, uh, everybody needs to know how much any of this costs so that before they go, they can make that educated decision uh, or at least be aware of what's happening before they you know, agree basically to, uh, to, to put themselves in that amount of debt or what have you. But the healthcare industry, it seems in many ways, they have, uh, followed the letter of the law. So they've made it available, but they don't do it in a human readable way. They don't do it in an incredibly accessible way. And they've basically just done the bare minimum. In in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases. And so the uh, GPT, what it would be good at doing and what it is good at doing, according to Bowden, is being able to go in, pull all of that information, process it, parse it, and understand what it actually means, and then use that to inform the patient actually how much it would cost, and then also factor in things like insurance and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of this kind of processing and and I'm doing a hand movement for those who are listening and this chewing that uh, GPT is able to do to make it easier for people to understand. Um, Bowden talked about what does the what the future looks like for uh, do not pay. And it was a very interesting uh, idea because Bowden actually did talk about it whenever he joined us for the show. I I keep saying Bowden, it's Bowder, excuse me. Um, Bowder did talk about it when he joined us for the show uh, that instead of having this situation where I go to the Do Not Pay website and I kind of look through the list of things and try to find something uh, that works for me that I need to, to fix, instead, it is kind of like a little... AI and they he does call it a lawyer, a little AI lawyer AI sitting clippy. on your shoulder. An AI clippy, yeah, sitting on your shoulder <laughs> and letting you know. And this was kind of a wild concept. Um, this was the quote that the AI would kind of say. It says, uh, I've been monitoring your internet speed. It was too slow and I got you a refund. So imagine <laughs> not only oh um, having the AI kind of there to actively let you know, hey, this is going on. Do you want to uh, fill out this form and do this? No, you could find out, you know, the next day when you wake up, you check in and it turns out that that already happened, already got you a refund, got you some money back. And again, I, I love uh, the, the the awareness here uh, from the Fast Company article. Again, quote, that's what these big corporations have. They have whole legal departments, a general counsel, and that's what we want to bring to the consumer. So even though they're pulling away from, you know, joining you in court, um, I think there's still a lot of uh, f- what I feel is a kind of good uh, approach to trying to democratize an area um, of, of complex rules and laws and using 
the, these modern platforms and technologies that we have to help people ultimately. That's just, that's just a good thing in general. So I'm going to continue watching uh, Do Not Pay and, and keep an eye on, on you know, what the company is doing and how they're helping people save money. Um, because I think that it is, uh, it's, at least in its current state, something that is for the good of people. And that's cool to me. And it's not just uh, saving money either. Um, he mentioned in this article that two weeks ago they released their first GPT-based product uh, on their website, which is basically all about terms and conditions and lease agreements. Oh, so you yeah. can feed in your agreement or your TOS, and the GPT system will find all the red flags and explain those things to the consumer. So, you know, something we've talked about on the network for years is how complicated terms of service are, how most people just blaze over them because uh, because they're so long and detailed. Like, who who is going to sit there and pick it apart? And, and you know, it, it's just, it's a lot to expect any average user to do that with each and everything they ever use. And so a GPT system could actually take a look at it and be like, all right, you know what, most, most of this... Not, not anything to cons- be concerned with, but there are these two points, you know, something about your data, blah, 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 and explaining that to you so that at the very least you're more informed than you would be if you had just skipped through it or, you know, lease mm-hmm. agreements is another example. I think that's really fantastic use of, uh, of the technology. I love that. He said, uh, it's only been live for a few weeks. They've already done 10,000 terms of service, uh, through the system. So I'm super curious to check that out as well. Yeah, I kind of want to upload my lease agreement and see what the red flags are to stick out. <laughs> what do oh, I need to know? Really? It's too late. I, Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have signed for that. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin gets my firstborn child. I didn't see that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pretty cool Still stuff, sneaking that into lease agreements. I don't know yeah, why they always. keep going for that. It's always in oh. there somewhere. And I always Anyways, that's really cool stuff. Very cool stuff. I'm happy that they're not giving up on, on it either and, and continue. Absolutely. They yeah. have something really, uh, really worth, um, really valuable to consumers potentially. So cool stuff. All right. We have reached the end of this episode. Don't worry. We'll be back next week. TNW Tech News Weekly publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. So go there, subscribe, and you won't miss a single show. And if you would like to get all of our shows ad-free, including this very show, Tech News Weekly, well, you can do that because we have a club that you can join for uh, starting at $7 a month or $84 a year. You can join Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. When you do, because you are in, uh, in effect, the sponsor, you get every single show with no ads. It's just the content, and we appreciate that support. You also get access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else behind the scenes outtakes before the show after the show uh fun bits and bops that uh you wouldn't otherwise get and access to the members only discord server a fun place to go to chat with your fellow club twit members and also those of us here at twit it is always on and popping as the kids say they probably don't say that i'm old uh but (laughs) it is a lot of fun to hang out with your uh with with your uh, fellow Club Twit members and have uh, conversations pretty regularly with many of the hosts who pop in as well. Uh, again, starting at $7 a month or $84 a year, that's because we heard from folks who said, hey, you know what? I would like to give you more money than just $7. And so we now have a way for you to 
bump up that price if nice. you'd like to. Uh, because, look, we are always trying to add more value to the club. Uh, and one of the ways we do that is by launching shows that are Club Twit exclusives, like the Untitled Linux show that is all about Linux. You also have uh, Hands on Windows, which is Paul Therott's show that has uh, some tips and tricks and other bits of information about Windows. A great show if you are a Windows user, how you can do that. And then also access to uh, Hands on Mac, which is my show, all about uh, Apple's different devices so you can make the most of those. I've got, again, a short format show, so tips and tricks. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, again, available seven bucks a month, starting at that $84 a year, twit.tv slash club twit. We'd love it if you joined, uh, the club. And thank you to those of you who have. Um, if you would like to follow me online, I am at Micah Sargent on many a social media network, or you can, uh, head over to chihuahua.coffee. That's C H I H U A H U A dot coffee, where I've got links to many of the places I'm most active online. Uh, check me out on Sundays for a show with Leo Laporte called Ask the Tech Guys, where we take your tech questions and do our best to answer them while also doing song and dance and all sorts of stuff. It's a great variety show. Uh, Tuesdays, where I uh, host iOS Today with my co-host, Rosemary Orchard, where we talk all things Apple. And on Thursdays after Tech News Weekly, that's when Hands on Mac publishes for you club members. Jason Howell, where can folks find you online? Well, I'm on Mastodon, twit.social slash at Jason Howell. I'm also on Twitter. I haven't left the bird site yet, but I'm just less, I'm just kind of less involved with it. Like I'm reading it here and there, maybe occasionally putting out a tweet, but at Jason Howell, you can find me there as well if you like. Um, doing all about Android every Tuesday, twit.tv slash AAA. In fact, our earlier guest, Michelle Rahman, is a very frequent guest on All About Android. He was just on earlier this week. So check out this week's episode if you want more of his insight. He is awesome. And uh, that's really about it. Helping out with other shows behind the scenes, producing for Leo. That's what I do here when I'm not doing Tech News Weekly and all about Android. Thanks to uh, John Ashley at the studio. Thanks to Burke McQuinn behind the scenes testing uh, our guests to make sure they are show ready. And thanks to you, because without you, we would not have a show for there would be no one watching or listening. So we appreciate you and we will see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Ant Pruitt, and I am the host of Hands-On Photography here on Twit TV. I know you got yourself a fancy smartphone, you got yourself a fancy camera, but your pictures are still lacking. Can't quite figure out what the heck shutter speed means? Watch my show. I got you covered. Want to know more about just the ISO and exposure triangle in general? Yeah, I got you covered. Or if you got all of that down, you want to get into lighting. You know, making things look better by changing the lights around you. I got you covered on that, too. So check us out each and every Thursday here on the network. Go to twit.tv slash hop and subscribe today.